My name is Pastor Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege again of sharing you, sharing with you God's Word this morning, and we are in our series about relationships, what it means to journey together in relationship and those key relationships in our lives. Um, this morning, we're going to be focusing on um, families and the interaction between um, children and parents, but then on a much, much larger scope than that, just families in general. Um, it's, it's interesting, uh, there's some things that I've been, I don't know, troubled by, but at least challenged by as I've gone through um, just learning a little bit this week. I was at a prayer conference for three days, and so um, I didn't quite have uh, the same amount of time on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to spend on the text, but um, on, uh, I think, uh, Thursday, I think God gave me some, some pretty good things that I think we can um, share together this morning, and especially there's a story of a family in our church that I think you will be blessed by as we see what God does, both in His Word and through His Spirit in our homes and in our families. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, a familiar passage. It's only the first four verses. I would encourage you to turn in your text to that place. As we get ready to spend time in God's Word together, let's pray that He anoints our time with His Spirit with clarity, and with his power for transformation. We praise you, O God, for your word again. And this morning, we're spending time with four verses. Four short verses. But they, again, show us so much of who you are and what you desire for us, your people. Father, I pray for the relationships in our community. Lord, we know that there are many that are full of joy, um, even as we see this slideshow of the Intout family, Lord, we um, experience the joy of what it means to be a part of that home. We also know, Lord, that in all families there are challenges, that there are times, Lord, of strife, of argument, of conflict. We know, Lord, that there are no perfect families, that um, all of us in our own way show some dysfunction. And we pray, God, that you, through your spirit, because of the work of Jesus, show us your truth in your word this morning. Help us to understand more deeply what the work of Christ on the cross, how that touches all things, including how we interact in our homes and even as we're adults, as we interact with our family, both near and far. Father, give us your wisdom. Give us your power through your spirit to be transformed and to seek, Lord, your wisdom, your, your power, uh, and what it is that you call us to in those most key of relationships, the relationship within our own family. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, the first four verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Now, in your NIV, this next verse will start with fathers, but that's a plural Greek called pateros, and pateros is also the generic plural, so fathers and mothers. This is not just um, a masculine term. It's for both fathers and mothers. Mother, fathers and mothers. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I 
I've wanted to talk about families for a while and uh, plan this sermon series about, I don't know, about six or seven months ago. And I was thinking at the time that it probably should be pretty easy to find a text that gives real depth of teaching on what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a son or daughter. But I'm going to pose this question to you. If you had to, off the top of your head, go to a text that teaches you how to be a parent, where would you go? Where would you go? I mean, we know that when we talk about marriage, we've got a couple significant texts. We have the entire book of Song of Solomon, when it talks about intimacy between a husband and his beloved. We have sections of the text that talk more even about marriage in some specifics. Um, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husband, love your wives. Those sorts of texts. We have some other things. But here, um, we have four verses. And, And there's other places where there's teaching about parenthood and about families, but not maybe this broad chunk of text, this significant detailed teaching that we might think of. Oh, sure, we can look at and examine relationships in families. We can see uh, certain things that Jesus does in his teaching and how he interacts with different people. But again, the detailed, this is what you should do, this is what you should not do, is not readily apparent when we talk about families, which is interesting because if you think about, or maybe even Doug could share that with us, if we talk about Christian parenting, I have a feeling that at the Christian bookstore, there's a whole big section of it, and they talk about certain texts and certain, certain teachings and certain themes, and, and, and some of those things are great, appropriate. But I think the challenge is, is that we need to dig into the text more in order to understand what it means to be a spirit-filled, Christ-following family. we got to think about this. And so this week, I was, as I was looking you know, at this text, I was thinking, okay, there's only four verses. And it seems like there's not really a volume of teaching but that's the incredible part about God's Word. Is I think that God's Word, when we really struggle with it, challenges us to think very deeply. And even though there is not a large volume of text here this morning, I think the depth of its challenge, especially to us as parents, those of us who are parents, is deep and wide and broad, should force us into some thinking today and in the week ahead about how we parent, about how we need our homes, about how we interact with our families on a larger scale. Now, because of the lack of volume of text, we might think that there's really not a big issue for families that Paul is writing to, to the Ephesian Christians. It would seem that he is um, not naming a big issue, but he's naming something. 
which is, which is key because as we hear the text or we read the text that Paul gave to the Ephesians, Paul wouldn't write something to the Ephesian Christians that wasn't important or an issue that needed to be addressed. So obviously there's something here that's important. And obviously there's something that, that maybe even is an issue in the church that Paul just, even for four verses, needs to name and say, okay, let's talk about this just a little bit and let's address it. And that issue, um, at least as it seems like Paul is naming it, is honor or lack of it on the children's part for their parents. And exasperation and the abundance of it uh, for, um, from parents to their children. And, and it needed to be clarified for these believers. Now, maybe there is strife and disobedience in the church, in families, and Paul just wants to address that and says, okay, here's a roadmap, or here's some things that you can know and learn about it. But it seems like, simply because it's a small amount of text, that it just seems like they need a little help. Not a, not a huge issue, not the sort of thing like in Galatians, that whole book, Paul is naming an issue in the Galatian church, and he's really hammering it home about unity, about coming together as the body of Christ, and he takes five full chapters. Here we have four verses, but I think there's something here that we'll miss if we don't dig in. And I think, as I thought about this, and I think as the Lord sort of opened my eyes to it this week, I realized just how huge of an issue it is not just for these folks, but for all of us. And if you go too quick, you'll miss it. And if you don't really know what you're looking for, you're going to miss it. It may seem like a small problem, and that should be the quantity of the text, because of the quantity of text, Paul's use of one word highlights a huge problem in most homes, and that word is exasperation. Now, how many of you, when you hear that word exasperation, because I'm assuming you've read this text before, you're a little confused by what that means? Anyone? Exasperation. How do we not, how do we exa not exasperate our kids? How do we exasperate our kids? Well, then we need to do a little bit examination of the word exasperation. And I'm not going to go to the English here because I think the English doesn't do us really um, justice to the word exasperation. See, exasperation is used only two times in the whole New Testament. This word, this Greek word, exasperation. It's one of those reasons why when you hit this word in this text, you sort of stop for a moment. Exasperation, that's, that's unusual, it is. And in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, I believe it's verse 21, it's even translated differently. It's more anger. But here's the interesting thing about that particular word, exasperation. It occurs two times in the New Testament, but it occurs over 50 times in the Old Testament. Now, if you're a biblical scholar, you, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, in the New Testament, the New Testament is written in Greek. In what language is the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Old or New Testament Greek, Old Testament Hebrew. How do you have the same word in both? Well, you know what? The New Testament Christians actually had to translate the Old Testament so that they could read it, and they translated it into a very ancient document. It's called the Septuagint. 
And the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And actually, for us who study God's Word, it's a very reliable tool because it's a very old text. It's very near to the old, old translation. And oftentimes, because these were Greeks reading Hebrew writings, it gives some insight. And this word exasperation shows up a whole lot in the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation of Greek, for these people, this word exasperation. And you know where it always appears? It only appears in one circumstance. And that circumstance is when God is ticked off at his people because they are involved in idolatry. Exasperation, when you read it in the Old Testament, you read these words, and God became angry at their idolatry. And God became frustrated with His people or with His king because of His or her idolatry. This word exasperation connects very quickly to idolatry. And so when we read that, parents do not exasperate your children. We read that as parents don't mess up your kids by welcoming idolatry into your home. If you welcome idolatry into your home, then those kids, children, that family, your unit, whatever it looks like, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, cousins, whatever it is, it's like we knock a cog off of the wheel. It doesn't run right. And when we think of idolatry as being one of those things that hurts, that breaks our family relationships and causes them strife, we realize really quickly that that definitely applies to our homes and to our lives. Many of our families need a little help. Many need a lot of help. But all of us have an idolatry problem that is often a huge barrier to a God-glorifying journey in our homes. I hope you understand really quickly what I'm talking about. Think about the relationships in your home and how those things are challenged. And oftentimes they are challenged because there are things that come up in our lives and we start to move towards and make a focus and make something important to us that hinder our relationship with our kids or stop our relationship with our parents. Those things can be things like selfishness. Maybe there's other things specifically that you could name as an idol in your home. Could be a career. Something that you worship so you don't spend time with your kids, with your family. It becomes your focus. It could be money. How much time and energy do we spend pursuing money to the hindrance of the relationships that we have? Maybe it's pleasure. Or maybe we're just simply self-focused, selfishness. 
Maybe even our kids become an idol. And because we make our kids are an idol and we pour so much time and energy and effort into them, we hinder their ability towards independence and their opportunity to flourish as the person God made them to be and not the person that we are seeking to make them to be. Our own families can become an idol. And we stop our participation in the kingdom of God because we need simply our own family time. I want you to think for a moment about your family and how you have allowed, I have allowed, idolatry into my home. And that hinders how my wife and I interact, my kids and I interact, and even on a broader scale, it hinders how I interact with my parents, both who live thousands of miles away, my brother or my sister. Because I can get focused, I can spend so much time and energy on these other things that I stop, I think, what God calls us to obedience in our family relationships. But my big problem is that the idol that I know I have, I got honest with. It was given to me. It was given to me by my father and my mother when I was a kid. See, when I was a kid, um, my parents worked hard, very hard. My father was involved in social work, and eventually he was involved in the leadership of the denomination of the Christian Reformed Church. My mother was involved in government, um, a government job where she would, um, she was actually the director of an unemployment services office. Both of them are highly educated, very accomplished people professionally. And I saw that. And it hindered very much what my childhood looked like. Me and my brother will laugh on the one hand so that we don't cry about how much time we got to run ragged on our own in the neighborhood. We got to do whatever we wanted. I was telling somebody the other day that my brother and I kept track between the two of us. We broke 53 windows in our neighborhood. We were heavily involved in um, all the little shenanigans of little kids, and eventually when you get to be teenagers, those become larger shenanigans, and we got to do that. You know why? Because my parents showed me their idol. I love my parents. They're godly people. They showed me who Jesus was so often. They shared with me truth. They loved me. All of that is true, but they also gave me the idol of working too hard and making your career something that you worship. And here's the thing. There are times when my knee is still bowed to that idol. My wife can tell you. My kids can tell you because I learned it honestly. And when we have those things, those things from our childhood, oftentimes unless we go through the work of God redeeming and changing and transforming how we see our families, how we see our homes, how we consider what God has called us to through His Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ in our unit... We are doomed to repeat the same sort of activities. What idols were you shown as a child? 
And now look at your own lives and wonder whether or not you continue to exasperate in some way, shape, or form, maybe in a small way, maybe in a big way, your family relationships by allowing idolatry of the same sort into your lives. I mean, we're in essence talking about the heritage of sin. The sins of the father and mother are visited on the third and the fourth generation. There's truth of that in the text. It shows itself. There are so many people. I look at you, and I know you're not going to like this, but I see in you your father. I see in you your mother. And I know it drives you crazy because you find yourself saying the same things already to your kids that your parents said to you, and you're like, oh boy, I'm turning into my mom. I'm turning into my dad. That's this whole idea of the heritage of idolatry that we have in our lives. On some levels, it can be a good thing. We learn good things from our parents, but unfortunately, we learn our idols too. And this text for Paul and the Ephesian Christians, he's focusing both children and parents to obedience and submission to God's purpose and commands for their homes and relationships in order to stop that exasperation, in order to stop this issue of welcoming anything into the home that is not of the Lord, what does he say? Well, he points right away for the children to what? The commandment to the law, to the teachings. And he, he says, children, honor your father and mother. Go right back to the biggies. Go back to the important stuff. And then there's a promise, there's a blessing that comes if it is that you do that. And so for children to hear in the Ephesian church, go back to obedience. Go back to God's law. Go back to what it is that God calls you to do in order to live in relationship with Him and relationship with others. And even more key then, he begins to hit the parents and says, bring them up. Bring them up knowing what it is that God has called them to. What it is that God has taught you. It says pretty clearly here, fathers and mothers, do not exasperate your children, so don't bring idolatry into the home. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So in order for us to guard against this idolatry idea, these things that take us away from God, we need to move towards God. Doesn't that sound so simple? And yet it's something that for our lives is so very complicated. Because instead of us moving towards what God has called us to, what do we do? We move towards what the world tells us. We move towards what we think our kids should be doing how many of you have plans for your children? We do, right? We got an idea. This is the way this is going to go. You're going to go to college. You're going to get married. You're going to have children, hopefully in that order. You're going to get a good job. You're going to pay off your student loans. And when I get old, you're going to take care of me in my retirement. In some way, shape, or form, we have those sorts of ideas. And it could be, insert different plan here, 
Could be, okay, I'm, I want my kid to do this, or I want my kid to do that, I want my kid in the family business, or, or whatever it is, but we have these things, and yeah, we give the words we want God's plan for their lives. But how many times do we insert foot into God's plan because we have a better one? How many times when our kids are discovering who God has made them to be, do we get angry because what they're doing certainly is not what we would have them do? I got to tell you, my daughter, being a freshman in college, I hear many, many things come out of her lips that I desperately want to jump on and say, that's not the way things are going to happen. And I will confess, I have even done that. And sometimes that's okay. But it always needs to be in submission to God's plan and purpose for my daughter. Because as I understand God's teachings and His instruction, He does not call me to insert my foot into His plan. He calls me to follow His plan and see where it goes. And to share that with my daughter and my other daughter and my son constantly raising them up in the teaching and the instruction of the Lord that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives and my key desire as a parent as someone who God has entrusted the responsibility of raising these kids my fundamental desire is that they do what God calls them to do and not what Scott calls them to do and that's hard and I know that there are folks out there who have put those two together. What Scott says is what God says. Are you sure? I'm not. I'm not always sure. I've always been surprised when God all of a sudden speaks differently into the lives of my children and see what he knits together. And more often than not, it's ten times more beautiful what I can imagine. Katie was supposed to be a soccer player. She is. She's an okay soccer player, but you know what she does really well? Drama. And I don't mean that on a teenage girl sense. <laughs> but the funny part is, I would have never pegged that. I would have never got it. I would have missed it completely. Praise be to God. Something happened. Someone spoke to her about who she was and the gifts she had. And all of a sudden, there's flourishing that goes on. What is God's plan and purpose for your family, for your kids, for your homes? And same too for you as children. How do you honor in obedience to God's call and what Christ has done to redeem you from your sin? How do you honor your father and your mother? And to expand the teaching beyond even what Ephesians says, we also have Jesus speaking constantly about his obedience to the Father's plan. 
And him saying it means that this church, this Ephesian church, would hear about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his Father, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He was submitting his plan and his purpose to God's plan and purpose. And for us to do that in relationships within our homes and within our larger family units is so very important. Now for us, you and I, some of this work that we need to enter into, for us to consider what idolatry we're allowing into our homes is the beginning of making our homes holy spaces. For us to consider what things are here, where are we spending our time, our effort, and our energy? A good way to do this, if you're wanting to discover how to do this, is look at the calendar where you write all your family events and look at your checkbook. If you on your calendar are focusing a whole lot of time in certain areas, then you need to wonder whether or not you have an idolatry problem that you are showing to your kids every time you're involved in it. If you look at your checkbook and see the amounts of money, I guess checkbook, that's an outdated term, isn't it? If you look at your online banking account and look at the pie chart that they give you when it says you're spending your money here and you see one slice of that pie way out of proportion to what it should be, is there an idol there? Could be travel, could be food, could be experiences, could be stuff. For us to ask those questions in our lives and then begin to address them so that our children and our families and our homes and our parents experience the home as a sanctuary of God's presence. See, ultimately, folks, and hear this from me because I know how hard-headed many of us are, God calls us always to put Him before vocation, before finances, before sports, before hobbies, before technology. And when we do that, then our emulation of Christ behaving like He did takes a giant step forward for us to continue to ask the question, Lord, what is it that you are calling me here? Now, for some, it doesn't mean that our schedule then changes a lot because even what we are doing, we are doing unto the Lord, but that becomes a sort of the, the qualifier. Am I doing this for the Lord? Am I doing this because God has called us to it? Am I doing this because God is showing fruit in this area and He is calling me and our family and our home to move to towards it more. And I think the problem is is that we're just on autopilot oftentimes. I know I am. I'm on autopilot. And I'm not thinking, what is God calling me to this? What is God calling me to here? What's going on? What's the purpose? And how is it that I am glorifying God and pointing people to Jesus Christ as the reason for their salvation, the reason for their hope? And not only that, but the Spirit then equips us to a new level of relationship. 
And we can experience freedom in our families as a beautiful gift of God. How many of you would say that you're experiencing some sort of exasperation in your home? There's enough. Okay, now let's take it out of your home. How many of you are experiencing some exasperation on the larger family unit that you're a part of? I'll put both hands up there. If that's the case, then there's some questions that have to be asked. And the incredible part is that when we are willing to engage in that question of what is God calling us to here and eliminating an idol out of our lives, eliminating the idols, and God does His work to transform our homes for Christ, something extraordinary can happen. I want to welcome Don and Jesse forward. Don and Jesse Bierman have shown a willingness to share this morning. Um, this family is a family that I love dearly, um, in part because with Debbie working here in the office, I've been in some way, shape, or form a part of the journey that you guys have been on for the last two and a half years that I've been involved, but I know it's been a a lifetime, and uh, I know that God has done something. I know that God has worked in you guys in a way that I think can bless us and help us understand even more what we know God's Word to be teaching to us. If you could share with us, guys, um, what was before for you, before you experienced transformation? What, what sort of things were were happening that, that you know um, there was a problem, there was an issue? Well, I want to know how you were able to see inside my family. <laughs> um, I guess the question, one, one of the questions you wanted us to address is, what was your idol? And there was the root of my problem. Um, my kids were my idol. And when they didn't do what I wanted them to do, I blew up. So what was happening in my family was almost a daily uh, screaming match. Um, there were arguments. There was all kind of hatred and dissension and anger. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. Um, well, my idol, I guess, um, was validation um, and self, my self-image. And um, I wanted people, my friends, um, to see that I was happy and that things weren't bad. And um, validation in stupidly a boy and um, I just felt that I had been doing so many things wrong and I had done so many terrible things that I would have never thought I would have done um, like my parents would never forgive me if they knew that I was doing some of the things I was doing and I just wanted to make somebody happy so I put everything I had 
and invested every part of me into a boy um, so I could get some validation for that. But What changed? What happened? Can I go? Do you want me to go? Um, well, my mom went to a conference thing um, a few weeks ago, and she learned there about the story of the girl or the woman who is um, having an affair with someone and the Pharisees wanted to throw stones at her and she saw me as the girl and they were throwing stones at me and she brought that home to us and we all sit down as a family and we talked about it and it just like made sense and Anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I know that story. I've heard that story a lot. And I never placed myself in that story. And I was really, um, my brother used to say, I threw like a girl. And uh, I found out when I put myself in my family, uh, I threw like a major league pitcher. I could pick up those rocks in an instant. And I was going to kill my children with those rocks. And um, the Holy Spirit worked in Debbie's life when she went to that women's retreat. And we were having coffee. She said, come on, we, we have to go have coffee. I, I got to share what God put on my heart. And we're sitting there and for the first time, I understood I was at that scene. I was the one throwing those rocks. And I have missed for years the reality that Christ died for my children and their sins and my sins. I think maybe for the first time when you and I were having coffee, I realized the depths of my sin and, and what it was doing to my family. My relationship with my daughter was essentially over. God had given me kids to raise, and I didn't trust him with his plan. I, I wouldn't trust him with his plan. And so I destroyed this relationship with my daughter. It was gone, essentially. And a few evenings ago, I think you thought I was going to ask for prayer for my melanoma. And that was the least of my worry. It was a relationship that I had destroyed and, and broken. And, and I didn't think God, I didn't trust God. This was before Debbie had gone on that retreat. I did not trust God to redeem that relationship and restore that relationship. What has he done now? God has given us a relationship. I have a long way to go. But I finally am at that point where I am trusting God with his children. And that his plan is way better than my plan. I have a huge God 
I made God small, and God is massive. And I'm finally giving and trusting that God will, in fact, have a plan for my children that is his plan that is way better than any plan I could have ever imagined. So we finally have peace. not much more I can add to that, but yeah, we definitely have a relationship now, and it's really good because, um, sorry, my dad means the world to me, and living with knowing that I constantly let him down, and I couldn't do anything right for him killed me, because I just wanted to, you know, do something right for him. And um, I'm not the victim in any way. I mean, I, I've done a lot of terrible things to my parents that I should have never done. Um, but when my mom came home and said that, it just it made sense. And um, for some weird reason, it was okay that they were throwing stones at me because I felt that, I mean, I was doing terrible things, so it was okay. Um, they have the right to throw their stones at me because how could you forgive somebody you know messed up as much as I did um, but that that day that we um, all sat down as a family and we talked it just um, it's really good because for the first time in years I felt that um, things were gonna be okay and that um, me and my dad were going to get through it. Because for a long time, um, I didn't think I was going to have any kind of relationship with my dad. And that killed me. But, um, I mean, through the grace of God, we're working on it. It's not perfect. Um, we still have our ups and downs. But um, it's a lot better than what it was. God be praised for When we as a family submit to God's purpose instead of our own, when we worship him and his plan for our lives instead of what we've got, the brokenness is healed, relationships are redeemed, and yeah, it's a journey ahead. I have a feeling that there will still be struggles. I know there will be. There will be challenges. I know you. I love you, but you provide them. But, and you do too, but the beauty is that, like we heard, it's not irredeemable. It's, not, it's never too far gone. And I know that there are some in this space who think that God can't redeem what I'm going through because it's too broken. How small is your God? And how large is the work of Jesus Christ to redeem what is broken into something whole and beautiful and for his glory. Would you pray with me for the Beerman home and that God's work might continue in our lives? We praise you, O oh God, for your redeeming work in the life of Don and Jesse and Debbie and Ray and in the Beerman home. 
And we ask, O oh God, that as we hear their story, we are challenged to consider our own. That we are challenged to wonder what idol, idols we have welcomed into our lives and how we instead need to submit to your plan and your purpose for families. Whatever those relationships might be, Lord, maybe it's a brother and a sister who, as adults, can't figure out how to even be in the same space together because, Lord, they've made an idol of being right. Maybe, Father, it's a, a mother and a daughter who, Lord, they just can't get together and figure out how to talk without blowing up. Or maybe, Lord, it's just an absence of relationship where we just go through the motions, we sit on the couch, watch our television, get on the technology things that we have, and we don't engage in what it means to raise up children in the way they should go so when they're old, they will not depart from it. Nor have we been willing to engage in what it means to honor our father and mother that our days may be long in the land which the Lord our God has given us. Father, send your spirit into our homes through the work of Jesus Christ. Redeem us to new things. May we, Father, make you a big God who can do what a big God can do, making big things happen, Lord, for your glory. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?